Welcome back to the Clericsware Ringmail Podcast. Today, I'm going to rant a little bit about horror in your RPG session. Question. Can you scare players? Answer. Absolutely. Although in a role-playing game, your session isn't going to be physically dangerous, or I hope that your D&D session is not physically dangerous, neither is a movie, neither is a book. At no point did I open a Stephen King novel and fear that killer bees would float out of it. But what you can do during the game session, or like those films and books do, you can elicit the same sort of sensation, the same fight-or-flight chemical response that you experience during an actual fearful event. So what I'd like to do is take a little bit of time to elaborate on an experience I had where I successfully scared the player in a horror theme campaign. As backdrop, we were playing in a post-apocalyptic event where the players up front had been told that it was the real world, the real United States, a town out west, and what had happened was described as, quote, Roanoke type mass disappearances had occurred, planes had fallen out of the sky, society was unable to maintain the infrastructure, having lost too many core people, and in the scramble to stay alive, society at whole had collapsed. Somewhat akin to Mad Max, specifically Road Warrior, where the general theme is that society ran out of gas. In this case, it's society ran out of people and resources dwindle. So, each of the players had made a character that was thematically appropriate to the game. We had a football player, I had a chemist and radio enthusiast, a convict, current parolee, and the parolee's player as a byproduct of how their role in the party and in the emerging narrative, we were, uh, they were selected by a supernatural entity for some sort of bargain. So we broke for a bathroom or snack break, and we stepped away from the table, and I mentioned to the player, hey, can I borrow you for a second? He came along, and I, outside of earshot of the other players, dead-faced, broke into a description of a sort of smoke-like creature roiling up the walls and down the ceiling in such a way as to form a indistinct entity, which spoke to him and addressed him by name. Outside of earshot of the other players, I broke into what was happening to his character. He stepped away from the party. He was in his typical space, not stealing his agency. This is building on what he had said he was doing. And I described a supernatural event. The entity would go on to offer him a deal. I forget the exact nature of the deal, but the idea was I was tempting him from a role-playing perspective, 
knowing his character to be this parolee, knowing this that his character did not have the same kind of connection to the place they were, the main enemy, so to speak, the driving factor for the danger in the local wilderness was tempting him to help overcome the last bastion of civilization in the region. Now, what ended up happening is not important, but what is important is that during these descriptions, I could see the player physically blanch. One element of the encounter was a helplessness. In order to feel a fight-or-flight response, specifically the flight response, we have to be in contact with something we believe to be hazardous, something that we need to avoid, that we cannot fight, that we need to excise ourselves from its presence. In the context of the encounter, the player had just closed himself off and was alone had no obvious means of escape and was being confronted by an entity he wasn't sure actually had physical form. Therefore, he did not have the mean to defend himself and he did not have the mean to escape. Putting him on the spot in terms of triggering that fight-or-flight response. Admittedly, you have to have the right kind of player for that sort of event to pan out. When you're talking about scaring your audience in cinema, for example, there are people who will walk into The Exorcist and come out shaken, and there are people who will walk into The Exorcist and laugh about the projectile vomiting. My player was a moderately talented role player, and he was able to immerse himself in the environment and in the character. If you have someone who doesn't do that, if you have someone who they see a stat block instead of a creature, then it will be very difficult to put them into that place where they feel threatened by it. Additionally, in a lot of old school systems where people look at their tokens, they look at their characters as peons, as pawns. They're not an investment. They're simply this dude. This is Bob the Second and he will become Bob the Third if this smoke creature stabs me in the throat. And future Taylor chiming in. At this point in the audio, my voice gets very hard to understand. It sounds like I'm talking in a fishbowl. So I'm thinking that the Bluetooth may not have kicked in on this recording, and I may have been instead of using the most expensive Honda microphone in the Anchorite community, been using the cheapest cell phone. But that's all right. I took a transcript and I'll try to read it back. Can an old school game produce the threat of loss? Yes, with some caveats. In new school design, the role of the player character in the narrative is increased. Their replaceability is reduced. Additionally, generating the character involves a build, a process, a thought that makes the character much more of an investment than 3D6 down the line for BX would be. Thus, because of that investment and the importance of the character, the new school game is going to represent greater risk of loss when you lose your character than the old school one. At first, 
Old School can and does produce the same investment and loss at mid and high levels. I can become Bob the Third, but that doesn't mean Bob is third level. When you lose a character, you start over. You're part of the party, but you're playing catch-up. True, I may not worry at all when my level 1 magic user takes a stray dagger to the face and drops. I'll just roll up the next apprentice. But if I'm level 4, 5, if I've broken into that next spell slot, if that character goes down, I'm going to feel a genuine sense of loss. So, in that sense, scaring the player is still possible through the threat of loss, the presence of danger, in an OSR game. Starting at mid-level, the investment of time and effort in the character having grown and grown, that loss, that scaring the player, just gets easier and easier. How did the player take being scared? He took it very well. We were talking about that moment for months after the event, after the campaign had ended, and this must be the hundredth time that I've told the story. To date, it has not yet gotten stale in the 15 years or more since this experience happened and this game was run. That genuine experience, that real emotion, that's the key. Eliciting the genuine reaction, that's the mark of the truly remarkable game master. Being able to draw a player into the moment, being able to inspire those natural and real chemical responses in the player, that's a defining factor which will get players addicted to your table and act as the delineator for an exceptional referee. Hmm. As such, was I implying that I am an exceptional referee? Yes, yes I was. But that is peripheral to the point of the episode. Back to the car. Having established that it's possible and can be pleasurable to frighten your players, I want to showcase the hot take of this episode. Scaring your players is not necessary nor integral to producing a horror atmosphere. What do I mean by that? Well, first, we have to consider what is the definition of horror. Horror is defined as an extreme sensation of fear, revulsion, disgust, or loathing. Literary historian Jay Kudan, and hopefully future Taylor will chime in if I misquote. Future Taylor chiming in. He is about to misquote. I have this written down on a piece of paper, but one of my boys appears to have pickpocketed the shirt I wore for work today. Mm-hmm. Blame the kid. But, in any case, he defines the horror genre as... Horror fiction, according to John Anthony Kudon, born June 1928, passed March 1996, academic author, and editor of the Penguin Book of Horror Stories, 1984, best known for his Dictionary of Literary Terms, published 1977, defines horror fiction in the introduction to the Penguin Book of Horror Stories as, quote, a piece of fiction in prose of variable length, which shocks or even frightens the reader, or perhaps induces a feeling of repulsion or loathing. So, from here, am I arguing that I don't need to scare my players in a horror game because Wikipedia told me so? No. Instead, I want to focus on those four pillars, those four aspects of horror fiction, and how 
I in the past have either run or experienced those pillars and how they can be used by a game master to produce the correct atmosphere for a horror experience. Quick shout out. This podcast, or the topic at least, was inspired by an ongoing conversation over at Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks and Grizzly Peaks Radio, hosted by Andy Goodman. He and some peripheral podcasters, uh, including Safer of the Safer Fantasy Crafting podcast, and I believe uh, Biggest Geekus might have done an episode also talking about scaring your players. I will put links in the show notes as I can, but forgive me. This is a bigger conversation than just me. A lot of folks are talking horror because 5e Ravenloft recently dropped, and knowing I'm late to the party, I won't have gotten all of the references. So dive in, look for responses and other episodes, and if I missed you and you talked about it, let me know. I'll give you a shout-out next episode. That said... We move on to the next pillar of a horror-themed experience. Shock. Regarding shock. Shock is a sudden upsetting or surprising event or experience. So, with that definition in mind, I want to speak to another the opening oh goodness all right I did uh, I did mention in a previous episode oh goodness I did mention in a previous episode that I was recording this on my hands-free device in the car on my drive to or from work uh, so uh, I had so far gotten away with having no major interruptions to the stream of consciousness but just now watched a motorcyclist dart in front of me and almost clip the front of the vehicle. And then I, as I drove, there was actually a, what looked like a Fiat on the side of said road with a smashed in front end and an airbag deployed. Did not stop, there was nobody in it, but that's okay. Uh, I figured nobody there, that means they went home and they're they're taking care of their ordeal. So, I have officially had my first interruption of the podcast from traffic. Where was I? Humorously, that is a very appropriate interruption because I want to talk about shock. Shock can be defined as a sudden and surprising unsettling experience or the sensation arising therefrom. Like my surprise, in almost watching a motorcyclist kill himself on my grill, or my surprise in seeing a vehicle disabled on the side of the road. I'm not sure why I was surprised. I am in uh, downtown Jacksonville. There are more wrecked cars than there are driving ones, but that's beside the point. The appropriate application of shock can and does contribute to a horrific experience and horrific atmosphere. So, what I would like to do is talk a little bit about the first combat encounter of the campaign referenced with the roiling smoke creature. Open scene. The characters are walking along a derelict highway. 
They are approaching the town from which they had hailed prior to the catastrophe. Mission B, to scavenge for supplies as they are able. In the distance, they see a figure staring at the sky. It's dragging a fire axe behind it. As they approach, they see that its skin is scarred, exposed, burnt. Curious and unsure of what this figure might be, they call out to it. It turns, shrieks, and charges. A burst of activity, unannounced, atypical for its appearance. It charges forward and buries the fire axe into the makeshift armor being worn by the chemist slash radio enthusiast character. The party is unsure of how to react, but reacts in kind. The football player striking out at the creature with a crowbar. Having closed on the creature, they notice further features about it. It does not speak intelligibly. It does not seem to feel. Its eyes are glazed over, white, no pupil, no iris. They make quick work of it, outnumbering it five to one. It falls, its breath stammering in short, rapid bursts. One character, perhaps out of morbid curiosity, kneels down to the shuddering creature. In the moment of its passing, its last breath drawing, the film over its eyes begins to clear. In that moment, its lips form a syllable too quiet to understand. In that moment, I describe in its countenance fear, and then silence. This encounter would set the stage for their mission into town. They would encounter several more of these creatures as they moved through the abandoned streets. We called them the sleepers. Mostly, they avoided contact, but on a few occasions they were forced to engage, preferring to stay at range. What about this encounter set the tenor so effectively? I would argue it was the shock of the encounter. Sudden change in tempo, sudden change in atmosphere, explosion of violence from tranquility. This rapid and dangerous, well, dangerous to their characters, transition surprised the party, introduced that element of shock. Likewise, the depiction of somewhat graphic violence and the contraposed decay of the sleeper versus what a healthy human body might look like represented deviation sufficient from expectations to jar the players. Lastly, the transition back. The sudden movement out of ultraviolence and into quivering and sleep. The sleeper went from one mode of existence the maniacal and uncompromising, unthinking creature into a more natural place. It transitioned out of an unthinking and animalistic instinctive behavior and into something identifiable. It was given emotion where emotion was not there. Suddenly and abruptly, humanity returned and was taken away. I could speculate, I could wax poetic, 
regarding the human condition and juxtapose health and decay or violence and healing. But fundamentally, the reason I believe that the encounter changed the tenor of the session and set the tone for the mission was that change, was that sudden jolt. And the implication that for the players at any time, a similar transition out of comfort, out of safety and into horror, that implication stuck with them thus demonstrating the power of shock. And there you go. That is part one of Taylor's Adventure into Horror. But what about the other two pillars, revulsion and loathing, you ask? That's why I say part one. I do have audio to talk to those pillars, and I actually have a couple call-ins also that I'd like to get to, but this episode is getting a little long, and moreover, I have been editing this thing for over a month at this point, so in the interest of getting it out onto the airwaves and still being relevant to the topic at hand, just need to push it out, and we can wait for part two for those other pillars and for those call-ins. Thank you for listening. Keep those dice rolling and keep those players horrified. And, as always, delve on. Are encouraged to reach out to Clear's Wearing Mail at the prescribed methods provided on the Clear's Wearing Mail blog. Parties dissatisfied with these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to go suck an egg.